proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective for Truth Meets Mission. My name is Aaron Carr and I'm your host as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen. And each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. And in today's podcast we have planter and pastor Joe Holland. Joe, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for the opportunity of being on the podcast. Now, Joe and I have a connection through a man by the name of Doug Logan, who is an X-29 PCA pastor, and um, Joe as well is a PCA pastor as well as X-29. Joe contributes to Ligonier, Table Talk, Christward Collective, just to name a few of the places you'd find some of his articles and blogs. Um, But Joe, why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit more about your background and uh, and Reform Heritage? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I really grew up in confessional Christianity to some degree, even though I, I wasn't a Christian when I attended Episcopal Church and never met, never remember them mentioning the 39 articles. Um, so that was high school and actually uh, came to Christ through the ministry of Young Life and um, started to grow and following him with just some dear friends um, late high school and bounced around in a bunch of churches, to non-denominational churches, Baptist churches, because my route into Christianity didn't come through um, a church, but a parachurch ministry. Um, I didn't get involved in in a church early on, much to my detriment. And so it wasn't until um, college at the University of Virginia that um, it kind of was impressed upon me by some older guys that I, I need to to find a church home, which you would think would be pretty um, obvious to new Christian, but it, it wasn't to me. And so got plugged into Trinity Presbyterian Church in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, was introduced to young lady to be my my wife, Hallie, um, through and in and around that time as well. And so we attended that church together. And um, it was through that church that was discipled and mentored by an older pastor. And he helped me discern a call to the ministry. And uh, that led me down to RTS Charlotte. And so I went to RTS really um, without much knowledge of Reformed theology at all, to tell you the truth. Most, most of the guys I liked in Charlottesville, Virginia, who were pastors were RTS graduates. So um, I really... I really didn't know all that much about Reformed theology, but um, of course, going to RTS got a, a good dose of it and a, and a love for the for the confessions. So, um, was there and out of there got involved and started ministering at First Presbyterian Church, Jackson, Mississippi, and um, of course, uh, Ligon Duncan was the pastor there, and he was heavily involved in um, writing about confessions and his love for the confessions. Um, wore off on on all the staff, went on from there to First Pres in a little place called Kosciuszko, Mississippi, and. Towards the end of being there, um, ended up coming back to Virginia, my home state, to plant this church in, in Culpeper. So uh, that's a little bit of my my background and how I got to where where I am. Now, coming from an Episcopal background that, like you said, was kind of distancing themselves from the 39 Articles because they never talked about it, was it um, kind of shocking when you were introduced to a, uh, a, a confessional um, kind of perspective when you joined arms with these Presbyterian churches? Yeah, you know, it, it it was, and to tell you the truth, I, whether it was I didn't have ears to hear it 
or it wasn't being articulated. I, I don't remember hearing the gospel growing up in that church. Um, I do remember the liturgy, and I do remember an appreciation for the preservation of historic Christianity, even as a, as a non-Christian high school kid. And so I, I never really rebelled against the idea of historic Christianity and really, really enjoyed understanding more about the Episcopalian founding, even then as a committed Westminster guy, um, coming to the Westminster Confession, then looking at the 39 Articles. So it, it, it definitely, it, it was a nice reminder of you know, my exposure to at least the vestiges of Reformed Episcopalian 39 Articles um, in that church, um, even though I don't, I don't have a very, very good memory of that being a very gospel-centered place growing up. And were there certain theologians maybe that helped you along the way? Uh, you obviously mentioned uh, Lingen Duncan. Were there any others that fed your uh, fed the flame? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, in seminary, being around Doug Kelly was just um, amazing. Uh, enjoyed him. Everything from the classes that we had together to to eating barbecue. He was just just he's, he's an amazing guy. But um, really got plugged into Bob Kara, and I, I was a chemistry major in in college, and of course ended up not going the chemistry um, genetics route and ended up in, in seminary. And um, Bob was an engineer in his former life before he, he came into teaching theology at RTS. And so his, his engineering mind, my chemistry mind, um, seemed to connect in the way that he taught. And so the, the systematic way that, that he taught not just um, exegesis and theology, but his love for um, the confessions wore off on me and he was looking to do a little independent study thing with a few students, um, actually just in his in his kitchen at his house. And so three of us um, decided to do it with him, and, and he worked us through the, the ecumenical creeds. And, and then after that, giving us a grounding in what the creeds were, he assigned each of us a creed, and it was our job to research that creed, its background, how it developed, how it was written, its impact on the church today. And um, for a class, it was our job to lead the class in, um, in that creed. And so... That class really set my love for the historical backgrounds of creeds as well as just a love for the Westminster standards um, and where they were. So Bob was really the guy who, who took this you know, parachurch converted guy and, um, and gave him a, a deep love and appreciation for Reformed confessional Christianity that really continues to today. It's funny you mentioned Bob Kara. Of course, I went to the same seminary you did, and uh, Bob used to pick on me because I came from a dispensational background in a group <laughs> called uh, Bible Presbyterian, and he used to poke some fun at that. Um, and he, much like you, I, I learned a great deal of appreciation for the confessional faith through Bob Kara. Um, but were there any old dead guys that maybe you uh, you kind of cling to? Uh, we've been talking a lot about present present existing uh, theologians, but any maybe from the past that have helped you in your study? Sure. You know, I, I, I knew that this was a question that you tend to ask, and so um, thought about it in advance. I really wanted to pick just one and, and roll with that guy, but much like confessional Christianity is, is a collection of multiple guys' wisdom, um, you know, I, I settled on a few, and, um, and most of them are by the name of John or Tom. So, um, you know, John Calvin, John Owen, John Edwards, John Cotton, Thomas Boston, Thomas Manton, Thomas Watson um, are all uh, John Calvin, of course, before that time, before Puritan era, Jonathan Edwards after, but the rest all within the Puritan era have, have all been guys I've, I've dipped into um, and gained a ton from. 
Um, most recently, working my way through slowly through the works of John Owen, just he's he's the guy I probably return to most. Um, even though I'll look at different Puritan resources based on a sermon topic or a different um, different systematic topic that I'm I'm studying. So if I had to settle on one, I'd say say John Owen probably for the long haul is going to be my 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 mentor in the old dead guy realm. Um, but really, I've gained a lot from those other guys I mentioned as well. I appreciate all those names you mentioned, and I want to turn the page a little bit and talk about um, church planting, which is something sure. you felt called to do, and. How did that come about? I, I want to kind of steer the conversation for a minute just about the call. The, the, obviously, there's the external call that uh, a, a church is endorsing you and sending you to plant, especially in the Presbyterian context. But maybe describe a little bit about that internal call of of choosing to plant a church as opposed to maybe go to an existing church and revitalize or, or whatnot. Sure. It, you know, I, I've been in two churches in, in the deep South, you know, coming just out of, of seminary and, and even in thoroughly Christianized culture, Southern culture, still over the course of being at those churches developed a, a strong love to see lost folks saved and people who haven't heard the gospel hear the gospel. And it's, of course, that led me not just to personal evangelism, but thinking, um, how, how how could I look to maybe plant a church, and was I even being called to plant a church? And by that time, I'd been in ministry for six years, and some of my friends who'd gone through seminary with me, who were like-minded and, and skilled in similar categories that, as, as I am pastorally, um, started planting churches. And so I started thinking, you know, maybe, maybe this love to see folks meet Christ and some skill set things were coming together, as well as a love for my home state of Virginia. I grew up in Virginia, love Virginia. Um, want to see the gospel um, stretch over the state. You know, by, by then, you know, my wife and I had had um, three children, and um, she was pregnant with with our fourth son, and wanted to get back closer to family as well. So some of it was just coming back, but all those things came together for me for for wanting to plant a church and really wanting to plant a church in my home state. Um, one of the guys, interesting enough, who really um, helped me. In my my itch for church playing, you know, wh- whatever you think of him is um, is Mark Driscoll. He was really coming onto the scene then and um, doing what what the Lord led him to do in Seattle, and um, and and where he helped me at least is that he was of course not planting a Southern Presbyterian church, you know, by by, by any stretch of the imagination, um, and I was in a thoroughly Southern Presbyterian context, and so um, and and thinking through. Um, what he was doing in Seattle and and looking at what he was doing, to tell you the truth, really wanted to to disagree and dismiss him right off the bat and and because of his style of ministry and what he was doing. And what that drove me back to was um, the scriptures and and what the scriptures say about biblical ecclesiology and even going back to some of the guys we've mentioned, what what is a reformed ecclesiology? Um, what parts of what I was doing in Mississippi were um, biblical and what parts were, cultural and what where did culture and bible overlap and and what kind of flexibility do we have in planting new churches that they might look a little bit different than um, a typical southern presbyterian model and so you know all of those things in me were going on at the same time when i heard about a launch team that was looking for a church planner in culpeper virginia which is just an hour north of of where i went to college and so i knew the area i was familiar um, with what they were trying to do. And so, so all of those different sources from 
you know, friends in seminary to the itch to see lost folks saved to, you know, what was going on then within church planning and Acts 29 were all um, instigators for me that, that led me to, to get assessed within the PCA and assess, assessed within Acts 29 and, and finally led my wife and I to move back to Virginia in 2009 to help plant this church. I really appreciate um, you you're talking about your the way Acts 29 was used in in, in, in kind of help stimulating the idea of planting, um, because it it shows that God is using obviously denomination but also a network, which for some people becomes kind of confusing. How how do these two things work side by side? And here you are a denominational guy, PCA, and yet you also belong to a network and. In some respects, you were working side by side with a with a Mark Driscoll that some of your compatriots in the um, in in the PCA would say, "Hey, I don't see how these two things can can align." Could you could you help us maybe work through that a little bit? Because I know a lot of my listeners have been influenced um, by Mark Driscoll, maybe in their early years, where yeah. he was a reason that they began to pick up Reformed theology and at least the Calvinistic aspect of, of of Tulip and those types of things. And gradually, he was kind of, if you will, an entryway into Reformed theology. So I'm just curious to hear that tension of being a denominational guy and at the same time a network guy and they don't always see eye to eye, but yet it seems to have worked well for you. Sure. It's, you know, it, within our denomination in the PCA, um, obviously a, a denomination is different from a network in terms of, you know, affiliation and, and how they work together. And, and some people see, they'll even say, hey, you're dual affiliated, which is not a, not a completely accurate term. Um, even within our own denomination, the, the the PCA, we have things called standing committees, and and those committees are trying to within our denomination do targeted ministry. And so we would have Mission to the World that's trying to do missionary work outside of the United States, Mission to North America that's trying to do mission work um, inside you know North America. We have RUF, which is ministry to um, to college campuses, and so. You know, it's w- within our denomination as a whole. There are these committees that are trying trying to foster targeted ministry. And so, as soon as you start having that con- that conversation, you realize not all ministries are the same, and not every type of pastor and every type of um, of ministry is going to receive the kind of nourishment, care, and counsel from the general denomination because we we do have different roles and goals depending on what God's called us in. So, I was looking to be a part of a group that was targeted specifically towards, um, towards church planning um, and certainly have gained a ton from our Mission in North America committee within, um, within the PCA. But what I, what I really liked about Acts 29 was the focus on, on coaching um, and an opportunity to be ecumenical in a reformed way. And so I always joke that the, the two big things that Presbyterians care about are money and theology. <laughs> and, um, and if you get those knocked out of the way, they're, they're, they're comfortable with, with working with most folks. And so, you know, theologically, Acts 29 was and is, um, is solid, reformed, complementarian. Um, and, and especially from the money side of things, you know, that, that we wanted from the beginning, wanted to tie the church planning. And um, Acts 29 did not work as some church planning groups did with the common pot mentality, hey, give us your money, we'll decide who to give it to. Um, rather, you know, you can give to, to who you want, and that's a, that satisfies your commitment to us. And so, you know, with those two things um, you know, set aside and, and, and comfortable from a Presbyterian perspective, it was pretty easy for me to come in um, to Acts 29 and, and really learn a lot and gain a lot. I, I really, I don't think I'd still be in church planning without 
um, the support and encouragement of Acts 29. My, my, I have some really good PCA friends, um, but also some of the guys in Acts 29 are some of my best friends in, in ministry and have really encouraged and nourished and coached me through the church planning um, process. Um, not to mention just you know, it's a larger swath of guys. And so we have different conversations, which I really like. I, I know the conversations we have in PCA circles, um, and they're different conversations we have in Acts 29 circles. And if I ask an Acts 29 friend um, something, a question I'm dealing with or a challenge I have, he's going to have a different answer than, than one of my PCA friends. And I really like having that broader dialogue, like I said, still within um, a reformed ecumenical context. And so you know, I, I say to, to guys in the PCA who are planting and are considering X-29, really the question isn't um, why should I, but why shouldn't I um, partner with, with, with X-29 and, and what they're trying to do. Um, and of course, I, you know, I, I want to give back as well. And so coming from where I'm coming from in the PCA, even having this, this conversation that you and I are having now, being a confessional guy, um, you know, X-29 is a stronger group as confessional guys come in and bring some of their wisdom um, from their side of things as well. And so... I really see it as a, a reciprocal relationship where I, I'm getting a ton and, and hopefully giving back a little bit to the organization. Man, you nailed that. As a as a Presbyterian and Acts 29 guy myself, I uh, totally agree with everything you said. I, I I love the phrase you said. You 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 don't say why not, but but why? But why not? And I think that's so true. Is it, Acts 29 has blessed me in, in ways that I think my denomination, I don't want to say lacked, but maybe wasn't as van, as advanced in, in, in such as church planting or development or assessments. And at the same time, mm-hmm. my denomination has helped me theologically, confessionally, um, yeah. and strengthening me in those ways. And to be part of the broader kingdom in both respects has been a, has been a real blessing. So I appreciate your answer on that, and, and I hope my listeners really catch on that it's not an either-or, but it can be a both-and. Yeah. What are some of uh, maybe the, the struggles that you as a church planter have seen um, just just kind of in a broad scope that guys that are considering planting churches need to be more aware or awake to? Yeah, no, my context is a little bit different because I'm, I'm specifically trying to figure out how can we, how can I not only plant a church in a, a small southern um, suburban, ex-urban town like mine? I mean, my, my town has 17,000 folks in, in the town limits and then 50,000 in the county. And so, so pretty small and still, even though we're a bedroom community of DC, still Southern-ish at least. And so, so it's a little bit different of a context than guys moving to a city center um, and, and expecting to kind of, you know, blow up past the 200 person mark within year two. And I mean, it, it's, it's the kind of thing that when I meet someone here, it's going to be a good five years before they consider coming to my church because it's we're, we're a smaller town. They want to know I'm going to stick around, that I'm for the town, that I'm not a flash in the pan, um, that that I'm 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 putting down roots in this place. And so, so from a church planning perspective, that's that's difficult, um, especially when you add to it that that our church at least has had a desire to reach people um, who who haven't been exposed to Christianity yet, who don't have a church home. And um, or or people who who maybe have grown up in the church, but for whatever reason, are no longer in a church. And so, we, when when you start to try to minister and help folks who come from those backgrounds, um, they typically come with a lot of challenges. You know, you're you're not having really mature Christians, you know, come into your church plant, and you really don't want them to because you want them to stay in their churches where they are. And so, 
know, a, a slow growing, growing church plant in a southern town, small southern town that's looking to reach um, non-Christians um, or folks who've been away from the church for a really long time. Um, it's just it, it poses a number of challenges from a number of different different standpoints. You know, you're, you're gonna you're gonna deal with significant pastoral issues and addictions and and things along those lines with a very limited. Um, church staff and not many mature Christians to come alongside and help hurting people. And you're in a town that's just not going to grow very fast. Um, and you know that, but at the same time, you don't just want to shuffle the denominational deck and, and try and win Baptist to your Presbyterian church. Um, you know, as they say, you know, Baptists do make great Presbyterians. Presbyterians make horrible Baptists, but I'd, I'd really like to go after <laughs> lost people. So, um, so, th- so it's. Uh, I- I'm not just coming in and saying, "Hey, isn't Reformed theology great?" If, uh, if you're Arminian, don't you want to come to our Reformed church? Like, I I, w- I want to reach people who, who've never considered Christ before, um, or have maybe considered Christ a long time ago and rejected Him, or thought that they were considering the true gospel and haven't. And so, on on a lot of different fronts, both engaging folks, engaging Southern-minded folks, engaging a small town, engaging folks with significant needs, with a very small, limited staff. Um, it just makes it really hard, but also really puts you in a place of dependency, dependency with the Lord. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's been hard. It's been challenging. It's been good. It's been fun to see people um, profess faith in Christ. It's, it's just it's, it's both sides of that. So, so those are both the challenges and, and some of the adventure associated with planting a church in a place like Culpeper. No, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that you're making planting real. And I think too often we think in planting, well, I'm going to bring the gospel to this area because there is no gospel here. And we miss the fact that there are other gospel preaching churches and all we end up doing is really uh, moving sheep around. Whereas you have to be intentional that you're going to go and seek the lost. Um, And that that requires to be uh, really focused on it in the sense of, of what it looks like to reach your particular context. Although in every context, uh, the, the sinner is a sinner and they, and they need the gospel and all that always looks the same um, mm-hmm. in the sense of a law of grace, um, you know, the, the continuum there. But, but how that plays out and the struggles are real and it's, it is easy at times to try to go after uh, the, the steel, steel sheep in a sense. And yeah. that's not what church planning should be about. It should be about reaching the lost and, 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 and moving that way. I want to turn our conversation to a more uh, narrow scope, specifically yeah. on the idea of, of church matters on the focus of confessionalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I both being uh, Presbyterians and confessional, um, I want to kind of just, just probe into what do you think the biggest issue facing the church is today? And I know that's kind of a very broad conversation that we could have, but if you had to say, hey, I think this is right now where we're at in 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 2016 this is the the major issue we're facing sure i i in my mind i i have three different issues and and i'm and i should also say like i'm i do think about what the church is facing today um globally but um even more specifically what is what is my church facing what are the challenges what are the challenges for my um, particular church and so as i as i think about that um, you know the the three categories I think in is I, I think Christology always has been is and will be um, a, a challenge and something that we need to continue to go back to to make sure we're talking about that we don't rest and say hey I've I figured out everything I need to figure out in the area of of Christology and how that applies to um, Bible and practice I think 
The second one in my head is, is a connection to history. Uh, I, I think that the modern evangelical movement and some of its progress and mission has has made steps in that direction either intentionally or unintentionally by making some breaks with historic Christianity. And I think that's it's really unhealthy and unhelpful. And especially as as the church faces, you know, you know possibly a, a time of greater persecution, I think it's going to be more important for pastors to say, hey, remember, we're, we're connected to a church that, that this has always been the case for us. You know, we, we've, we've always been um, counterculture, counter-community, holding out the gospel of grace to a culture that you know, laughs at us, tolerates us, you know, whatever else it might be. And so I, I think c- connecting to church history is going to be a challenge for us um, based on where we are and where we've been in Reformed evangelicalism. And um, I think lastly, just mythology and technology. Um, how is social media, how are smartphones uh, affecting the way that we deal with one another, that we deal with um, knowledge, that we learn? And so and th- those are three areas that, that I'm working in and trying to figure out as a pastor um, how am I going to shepherd my congregation? How am I going to preach the gospel? How am I going to encourage them to mission? Um, realizing that these are areas that I need to be pressing on and, and helping my people understand um, what the Word of God has to say for these things. Let, let's play with the three the three topics you gave us, and I want to start okay. in in the in the bottom half, the the third one, which is media. Today we mm-hmm. live in a day and age where everybody's voice is heard, and in that sense, there are. Uh, there's no scholars anymore in the sense that everybody's a scholar and everybody uh, is a doctor, everybody's a theologian, um, everybody's voice is equal in the sense of media. How do you mm-hmm. deal with uh, people in your church and trying to establish that all voices are not equal and, and, and just kind of step us through how you work that through with your own people? Sure. I mean, I think that that is one of the benefits of confessional Christianity. Um, and even being a part of a denomination in a church that's committed to a, a single confessional standard because it's in the midst of how my people are listening to other um, other pastors or reading different blogs. Um, they have a rooting and grounding in various areas. And so if, if somebody's talking about the theological issue of adoption um, and, and they're reading a blog about it, um, I, I, my, my folks know, hey, I can go to the the Westminster Confession, and, and read a, a categorical description of the, the key points within adoption. And, and so I, I think confessional Christianity helps give us some mooring when there are so many different um, voices speaking and, and also helps us to place guys, I think, in a good way. You know, when a guy says, I'm, I'm confessional, and even says his own confession, you know, I, I'm a Westminster guy, I'm a you know, three forms of unity guy, I'm a London Baptist guy, well, it's, there's a certain amount of, of trust and knowledge where you know that that person stands, um, and, and there's a certain amount of, uh, I, I guess, agreement that you can have. So it, it, I, I, think that's, I think that's one way that we can help people, and um, also helping them understand ministries that are rooted confessionally. You know, that's one of the reasons that I contribute to, um, to Ligonier and, and love the privilege to do that. And also the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and the Christ Word Collective. It's, it's not just, hey, these are great writing gigs because um, I want to develop as a writer, but I, I like what these organizations are doing um, in an age of mass internet digitized media. Um, I can trust them and my people can trust them. So I think instilling trust is, is one of the biggest things we can do. Um, and, and really also 
trying to encourage our people to enter into discipleship, whatever, whatever, however you want to say it, discipleship, mentoring, apprenticeship relationships in their own local congregation. Um, we, we're in a day where if somebody wants an answer to something, they know they can Google it. Um, and I, I don't think that that's very healthy. Like I, I think it's, it's much better for them to be able to, to tuck into a mentor in a local church who's going to walk with that person and, and help them understand confessional Christianity and confessional um, history and orthodoxy as it's been explained throughout you know, Reformed history. So those are some of the things I think on um, as I'm thinking on how to disciple my folks in a, a media, social media, um, Google age. It's, and you, you're nailing some great stuff there because I think what we discover is with all these voices, and I've had, and I've had some bloggers on my own uh, podcast where we've talked about um, specifically one time, you know, the individual was not an ordained clergyman, but I said, how do you deal with the fact that people are taking your blog as though you have final authority, you have, you have absolute say? And there is that tension out there, and I, and I love your pushback that, hey, a, let's, let's point people to the medias that are confessional and going back to the confessional standards based upon church history. And I think that moves to one of the other topics you mentioned that is in the church is the issue of, of Christology. When you look at the fact that um, our understanding of Christ, not too long ago I had Mark Jones on, yeah, and he talked about his book uh, Knowing Christ. And in that we talked a little bit about the fact that there is a struggle today that people really don't know Christ. Um, and it's because there's all these varying opinions, and we've strayed from the church history and the historical context, the, the creeds and the confessions of the faith. And we're seeing that now, even in the writings of guys like Bruce Ware with the Trinity, sure. and where just little comments are made, and they're slightly just maybe a little bit off in the way they say it, but it veers off into some really dangerous waters and may even say even heretical waters because they veered from that. Um, Just would you touch on that a little bit from your perspective and as a pastor who's trying to lead people confessionally and how you use the confessions to, to really bring consistency to what you're teaching and what you're saying and the people that you're pointing your, your own flock to. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think you've seen in these kinds of events and, you know, the internal eternal affiliation of the son, um, it was an issue that, you know, is directly tied to how we're talking about complementarianism um, within the church, which is a very practical issue, um, of course, or, or even just a, I guess a few issues ago as we tend to, to handle the, the conflicts and questions that come up online and are addressed in different periods. You know, we're, we're coming out of or still in um, significant discussions about law and gospel, um, and, and not just law and gospel in theological ways, but how that practically works out in the Christian's life and, and what is a Christian to do and believe according to the law and the law after conversion. Um, and so it, and that of course relates back to um, Christology. So, you know, to have, you know, Mark, I know Mark wrote on that, to have Sinclair's book, Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, which is just such a developed Christology through the lens of the Marrow controversy with uh, such, such potent impact for today and how we deal law and gospel. And so what, what, we're, what I hope to show, at least my people, is these issues like um, gender roles within the church and family or um, how does the Christian affect approach the law and, and Christian living, those eventually trace themselves back to our understanding of 
um, Reformed orthodoxy of what the Bible says on these issues, not just me and my Bible in the woods, I'm going to figure it out on my own, but what has the church always said, um, and, and which I think that the church would also center, of course, on on who Christ is, which brings us back to um, to that, that issue of Christology. And so I, I think these issues only illustrate that the practical things we're dealing with in church have direct bearing on um, what we believe about Jesus um, in, in his person and his work and his person and um, in his relation within the Trinity. You know, and, and, and as soon as we ask those questions and enter into those topics, we're in confessional land and, and we're not working from scratch. We, we do have these resources um, that our, our forefathers have given us in the faith. And so um, I, I want people to see just how helpful and practical the confessions are for you know, the current issues we're, we're facing in the church. Which should be an encouragement to the people that we're not starting from scratch, but we can go back and, and build off of this strong foundation that's been given to us. And yet we see repeatedly people veering from that. Um, and it, and it just, it's heartbreaking as a pastor that you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You, yeah. you go back to these, these time-tested confessions which have wrestled through this with minds sharper than ours and uh, have, have worked these things out. Um, and you go back even in church history, and you look at guys like uh, like John Calvin and, and Martin Luther, and they went back to the church fathers. They didn't just begin writing books on their own. Right. You, you, the number of times they quote the church fathers is astounding. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate that and, and how all those three tie together, especially in this day where everybody's a, everybody's a, a genius or a scholar or whatever you want to say. <laughs> of course. Um, I want to specifically kind of probe into pastoring, shepherding, mm-hmm. and what the confession looks like uh, for you in that. And let's talk about just maybe preaching, because that's obviously one of the best ways to give counsel. You can give it to the masses in your in your congregation rather than one-on-one um, is, is preaching. We believe the there's power in the Word because the Holy Spirit uh, accompanying the Word preached, and it, He uses it to change lives. But how does the confession... Or how do you use the confession in preaching? Maybe is a better question. Sure. Uh, I mean, I have I, I use Logos. It's just the the software that I use, and one of the things that one of the ways I have it is when I search a particular passage. One of the categories of search results that come back um, are the confessions broadly, as well as the the Westminster. And so, whenever I'm doing sermon research, I can enter in a passage. And um, I'll glance at you know which chapters are mentioned in which confessions, and and that tells me as I'm approaching each passage, what has has creedal history um, seen in these passages, what what issues are brought up, and of course you can't hit every one, um, but it, it gives me help in uh, approaching the topics that are going to come up in a sermon um, to know um, you know traditionally in church history when they're looking at. At this passage in John, they've talked about adoption, um, and I can even delve into some of those confessions and say, and this is what they've said in that passage. And so um, both guardrails and um, giving me some, some resources and going into texts as to which topics from systematic theology show up um, are helpful. Um, I, I really hate preaching topical sermons. I, I love working my way straight through books, but if I'm going to preach um, a topical sermon, if somebody says, hey, preach on this topic— um, I'll typically look up that topic either in the confession or the larger or shorter catechism and then use the footnotes to choose which passage I preach from. Um, and, and that way I know I'm not, if I have to preach on a topic, um, I'm not wrenching uh, 
a topic and a verse apart that traditionally the church has seen that these passages have gone together. So, so whether I'm starting with a verse and going into a systematic theme or starting with a systematic theme or going to a verse, um, the confessions really, really help me um, think through uh, what I want to say and, and how I want to say it and how I want to organize um, my sermon. And then just my, my, this isn't exactly preaching, but as a congregation, we work through responsively the New City Catechism each year, and I think this is our third year in that. And so my congregation is being exposed to catechetical, catechetical training before I get to the sermon, which, which also helps them think about the sermon in a historically confessional way, because they're each, each Sunday they're exposed to some aspect of a catechism and, and call and response and worship. So those are some practical ways that I use it. Why did you choose the New City and not the Shorter Catechism, maybe in a modern English? I'm just curious. Sure. Um, I, people may disagree with me, but um, my experience with catechisms is that people typically say, well, my favorite is either the, the Shorter from Westminster or the Heidelberg. And if you were to ask them why, uh, they would typically would compare the two by saying that the shorter catechism has a uh, precision to it um, theologically that is just so good and, of course, devotional. Um, but the Heidelberg is is a little bit more devotional and pastoral in the way it handles um, some of its questions. And so going between those two pastorally, even before the New City Catechism came out, I'd use those two in worship. Um, and so when it came out, and it, and it really is a, a merger between those two, Heidelberg and Shorter, and also just that it's 52 questions. And so um, there is this, the, the cadence to the year um, for my people that questions, we're working our way through these. And um, you know, the, I guess the last reason, which I, I try to highlight with my congregation, is um, the folks up at Redeemer that have developed the new city have, have created a lot of resources around it that makes it easy for my people to engage with those topics outside of the service. And so if, you know, I think this past week we did question 28. And so if anybody was curious about question 28, they could go and, and watch a, a pastor in a little video talk about question 28 and the topics there. They could um, get some resources that um, provides the children's catechism equivalent in the way the New City does that. And so there's a way for them to engage in confessional Christianity beyond even what we do in the service in a really easy, accessible way. So those are some of the reasons that we chose to work through the New City rather than the Shorter or um, or the Heidelberg. Does it make it, um, it just probing a little deeper, does it ever make it complicated in the sense of like the the absence of an issue, the, discre- the discussion on baptism? And here you are, a, ba- a Presbyterian church. Do you just, do you at that time bring in the Westminster or what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, and that's a part of, because I'm, and I will mention, I'll quote the Westminster Shorter in sermons, and I'll, I'll use it in other areas. And so my congregation knows that we're rooted in the Westminster standards, um, even though we're using the New City during that portion of catechism um, within the service. And I'm in a, I'm in a context where, you know, infant baptism is, is, is pretty unique. And and people think that you know the kid's being converted on the spot, you know, which of course is is not true. And um, and so I'll I'll work through what what do we believe about infant baptism, um, about pedo baptism, and I'll draw on some of the confessional standards when I when I talk through that. So um, it's uh, uh, my folks are not 
not exposed to the Westminster standards and, and what I'm doing. I, I think they're hopefully getting appreciation for the broadness of confessional Christianity um, and the ways that even to today people are trying to make confessional Christianity as accessible as possible. And to your defense, I mean, even the great Westminster guys, like you already said, will at times pick up the uh, Heidelberg. And I just like the way it's sure. worded here. Well, you're doing nothing less than, than that by grabbing the new city. It's, I think sometimes we make it, even in the confessional camps, we get so narrow, you know, only this one. And yeah, that's not yeah. really the way we function. So um, just kind of like probing a little bit deeper into the idea of, of counseling. And, and you look at guys like Richard Baxter, who went home to home, uh, catechizing the home. And I heard you already say, we use the new city because of all the resources and that people can look these things up and listen to pastors talk uh, via the internet on those specific topics. And so in a sense, you're able to do that. Um, yeah. and, and is there any other way maybe you would say, Hey, this is a way we're, we're using the catechism to catechize in the home, um, that you can, that you can maybe explain to our listeners. Sure. I, I think as, especially I'm providing pastoral counsel, I, I really see the larger and the shorter catechisms as hugely helpful, um, not just in, in thinking through, uh, justification versus sanctification, which of course it's it's very helpful in that, but especially in their explications of the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, both with say ethical Christianity and um, devotional prayerful Christianity. Those are some of the greatest jewels of you know confessional orthodoxy for for lay folks to use, not just not just pastors. And so, um, if folks are, are thinking about marriage, you know, hey. hey look at what the larger catechism says under, um, you know, the, the admonitions and prohibitions against adultery, because it's not just, hey, don't commit adultery, but also how can we, we foster good marriages? You know, go, go look at what it says about um, Ten Commandments about murder, because it's not just, hey, don't murder, but also how can we help life? And, and so it's, it's a tremendous resource um, for that. You even see, you know, Thomas Watson doing that and, um, and, and the way he worked through um, the shorter catechism and sermon series and, and making it very practical. And so it, it's it, it's just a normal part of what I do. I don't have uh, a desire that all the families and homes in my congregation are working through the catechism each year and and are memorizing it, even though at times I encourage them to do that. We have no, no program or expectation that that's going to be what everybody does, um, but everybody's being exposed to it um, somehow or some way that is suitable um, to where they are, um, even within the confession, the chapters on, um, say, assurance or good works are, are so pastoral and so helpful for normal, um, normal Christian living. So um, it's, it is one of the big tools in my, my counseling pastoral toolbox um, to direct people to, um, or even if I'm not making a direct reference to it, if I'm thinking of working through assurance in a counseling session, um, having that in the back of my mind of what the, the standards say about assurance is just helpful to me as a pastoral counselor. So, so those are some of the ways that we incorporate it into teaching, counseling, and homes in our, in our church. Now, it, it sounds like your, your situation there where you're at and where I'm at are very similar. And I'm kind of laughing to myself about that because we both have RTS in our back uh, history. We, we both have uh, Acts 29. We're both connected to Doug Logan. So we have a lot in common. But one of the other areas we have in common is that we're surrounded by people that 
not necessarily confessional. And I'm assuming that you have been faced with the same problem I have. A lot of people coming to uh, faith in our church and kind of looking around at other uh, denominations and, 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 uh, and tribes begin to say, yeah, but there's no creed but the Bible. You know, I, I have what I have in the Bible. Why do I need a confession? And just, I'm just curious, how have you handled that in the area where, in the context where you're at? Sure. I mean, of course, the, the statement, no creed but the Bible, is uh, a creedal statement in and of itself, um, which is always funny whenever we hear people say that. Say, well, you actually are because that is a creed. <laughs> no, no creed but the Bible. Um, but it, it's, you know, as, as I talk to folks, the, and some of the beauty of why I love being PCA um, is that you, you don't subscribe to the Westminster Standards when you become a member of our denomination. Um, we have some of the simplest membership questions, um, which I think biblically is, is great. Um, it's you know, the five questions, are you a sinner? Do you believe that, that Jesus died for you and is alone your Savior? Yes. Do you want to live a life that becomes a Christian? Yes. Do you want to support the church and its work and worship? Yes. Um, do you want to have elders pastor you and do you promise to um, support the purity and peace of the church? Uh, yes. Um, but really, like I- any of our friends um, and, and other denominations, other pastors could use the five membership questions of the PCA in their churches. Um, and, and so we really cast a broad net for, for what we allow theologically and confessionally for what it means to be a part of a church. Um, even though all of our officers, you know, elders and deacons, subscribe to the Westminster Confession, which is one of the most robust and precise confessional documents um, in, in the pale of confessional orthodoxy. And so from membership, which is, which is very broad and simple, to leadership, which is very pr- precise and robust, um, you have this space in between. And so in that space, you know, people may have never heard about the Westminster or, or why that's helpful, but they want to know that the people who are leading them know what they're talking about, are going to be faithful shepherds, are going to teach them the Bible. And so they want to know you're orthodox. And so in a church planning setting um, where you do have people who are coming in who maybe not have a Presbyterian background or even a confessional background, they still want to know, is this pastor being faithful to the Word of God? Um, If I let him pastor me, if I enter into membership and accountable relationship and and give him that access and authority over my family um, to love and pray pray for and direct our family, can I I trust him? And and really, the confession provides that for people that we're not just making it up as we go. Uh, We're we're staying in the line of what orthodoxy looks like, not just in a a theological exam, what should I believe for it to be true, Um, but also what does it look like to pastor people faithfully to apply those core true doctrines to pastoral ministry. And and so I think it's a huge comfort to people um, in churches to be a part of a confessional creedal church, whether or not they come from a confessional or creedal background, um, because they want to know, is this pastor faithful? Are are these elders going to take care of me? Um, Do they really know the Bible? And, and, and confessionality really um, is a check mark for, yes, we believe some very specific things um, that we're not only held to amongst one another, but even within our denomination. So I, I think it's a really encouraging thing for folks um, who come from maybe a no creed, but the Bible um, kind of standpoint, because they see the abuses that can happen in churches um, when they're unsure of where pastors or pastor elders stand um, when it comes to the Bible and pastoral issues. Yeah, because the pastor becomes a pope. In, in those situations where 
he's the only one who has the right interpretation and we need to follow his allegiance. And I've said to my own people repeatedly, by giving you a confession and placing it in your hands, you have something to hold me accountable to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so it is freeing, I think, for people who've never had that experience. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, at you know, as we begin to kind of uh, bring our conversation to a sure. close, is what does subscription look like for you? I mean, obviously, if you're confessional, you're 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 the way you subscribe to that confession, and and I've heard all kinds of various differences, but could you kind of how would you describe it in, in just the way you um, try to live it out? Sure, it's I mean. The, I see it in a number of different ways. I see it one as um, receiving a gift from uh, Christians who've stood in, in years past and, and wanted to to pass a gift on. And so I, I think back a lot between between David and Solomon, and David wanting to build the temple, um, and the Lord saying, "No, it's it's not going to be you. It's your son. Your son's going to do it." Um, and so David didn't say, "Well, well okay, good luck to him." Um, he, he really set out the work of preparing everything that Solomon would need um, to carry out that ministry. Um, and so Solomon was really a recipient of, of David's planning and preparation. And so when I look at the, the Westminster Divines and what they've done and other drafters of Reformed Confessions, you know, they, they weren't just blogging about you know, current issues. They were really trying to help the church that they were they were living in the church age they were in as well as the subsequent generations and so subscription to me is is saying thank you and and receiving the gift from godly intelligent holy pastors um, who who've wanted to pass a gift on to future generations that they wouldn't have the opportunity to minister to I mean you know more, more specifically as you look at the um, the regulative principle and and subscription it it, it helps me hone and sharpen um, worship um, to make sure we're not letting unbiblical innovation make its way in, that, that we're doing what the people of God have always um, been nourished on. And the way I tell my people, you know, we, we read, we pray, we sing, we preach the Bible along with the right administration of the sacraments, and that's, that's the regulative, regulative principle. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a standing the line and the recognition that God's been working in um, previous generations, wanting to receive that gift and be as faithful a pastor as I can be um, to my congregation that I love is, is subscription. And, and a part of, part of that is avoiding what C.S. Lewis said was chronological snobbery. Um, I, I don't assume that um, I've got it all figured out or that, that I, I, can, I can Google all the answers that I need for being a faithful and effective pastor, that I'm, I'm to some degree submitting to the authority of godly men who've gone before me um, not assuming that works are inerrant or without error or um, may need some tweaking when I figure out what does that mean for 2016, but still having a, a submissive relationship to the previous generations and, and what God's done through them. So it's a little bit of a rambling answer, but that's, that's what subscription and regulative principle and how I see us standing in the line of um, men who've gone before us. No, I, I really like your answer because I hear a lot of grace in it. And I think that's at times we, we, we abandon the, the, the gospel in the sense of the, the mercy and grace aspect when we get into some of these richer, deeper theological truths and we become almost mm-hmm. uh, uh, caged lions ready to jump on anybody who slightly disagrees with us. So I, I, I see in my own development, it took time to come to the understanding 
that I do cherish now, the rich heritage that's been passed on to me. But that didn't come overnight. You know, you got to kind of wrestle through it and you need to uh, allow in the sense the person to kind of have the time that we ourselves have had as we've wrestled through um, the scriptures and the Holy Spirit's worked on us. And we've come to the understanding of things like the regulative principle you've talked about. And, and you know, the one for me was the Sabbath and, and mm-hmm. making sure that I'm legitimately taking a rest. And, and what does that look like to be resting? And, and how does that teach me and remind me the gospel? <laughs> and, yeah. and so all those things, because when you first come across them, they can look as very legalistic. And, and I think that's because they've been applied in some ways by some people in almost a very uh, ungracious way. So I appreciate your answer and the grace that yeah. you, you, you dispelled it. What would you say maybe kind of as we close, um, maybe some things that person who's entering the confessional world maybe for the first time and they're hearing us talk about these things and and that maybe some struggles that they, they need to be ready for as they engage with confessions. Is there anything you can think of that maybe they need to be prepared for? Sure. I mean, it's... Uh unless you're in something like the new city, most of the, the confessional documents are relatively old. Um, and so you're, you're immediately engaging with, um, mentors, tutors, um, you know, old dead guys, um, who are working in a different context and different age than your own. And so it's you know, that, that understanding, um, if you're dealing with Westminster you know, you're dealing with the 17th century England. And so some of understanding the document is understanding, um, how they wrote and in the context that they wrote and and that just takes a little bit of work but you know the, the the work is worth it like like most things of significance you if you put in the work you can um you can get there and so you know that that would be one thing you know it's i think the confessions are are best studied with other people and and so if you're looking to um to start to engage with a different confession you know getting a little study group together finding um a pastor or someone who really understands um, confessions and has been in it and, and, and guiding through with a group of people um, is is a really helpful way to be exposed, taking advantage of um, confessional collective and, and other resources online so that it's it's not just um, you sitting down with the Westminster standards and plowing through, even though there's much to be gained from that. Um, it's, it's, it's both of those things. So doing it with others and realizing that you're engaging with historical documents are probably the the, the two things to overcome and realize are going to be challenges when you first set about the work of studying confessions. And I know we both would say the blessings far outweigh the difficulties of engaging with the oh, confessions, yeah. so it's well worth their time. Joe, thank you for today and, and just taking yeah. the time to share with us and wrestle with through uh, what it means to be confessional, and especially, specifically a confessional church planner. And so yeah, I, absolutely. I, I appreciate it. To our guests and uh, listeners, we say uh, see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.